We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 3 this morning, so if you want to start turning there as we get started, Luke chapter 3, and I'll get there in a little bit. Uh, But in his book, Leading Change, by John Cotter, the professor emeritus uh, of leadership at Harvard Business School, uh, he suggests this, the most significant impediments to meaningful change are low levels of urgency combined by high levels of complacency. Low levels of urgency combined with high levels of complacency. The enjoyment of life, the absence of any real hard and fast reason to do much different. There's something in all of us, I think, that resists change, even good change. This was historically true of the Hebrews after they left Egypt. Uh, this is the thought that was recorded, uh, that, that was stewing in their minds as they were traveling in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, uh, and it's in chapter 16. It records this, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate the bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. At this point, it's only been about a month and a half since God parted the Red Sea, literally parts the Red Sea in front of these people and lets them through. Yet, in the presence of this holy and awesome God, they seem to want to prefer the certainty of captivity under men the Pharaoh specifically, right? They were, uh, they were getting to sit by these meat pots, they said, eat bread until they were full. And I'm not 100% sure why they didn't have their charbroil out there, at the very least to George Foreman. I don't know if you've ever had boiled meat. It's, uh, it's not that good. There's one time I had my cousin over. I promised him ribs, and I decided I was running out of time, so I was going to pre-boil the ribs. Um, they were not good. I would have been better going to the store, getting some jerky. They were uh, tougher than that. I mean, it was really bad. I would have tasted better, too. Uh, Tasted better. Texture would have been better. All those things. But grill skills aside, the wandering Hebrews wanted this certainty that the Pharaoh's oppression brought rather than the unpredictability of freedom that God was offering them. Over the past few years, we've been forced to change, right? in our personal lives, at our jobs, and even here at church. Yet the assertion that I often hear is if we could only get back to the way it was before the pandemic, or this constant comparison to pre-pandemic numbers and methods, I think many folks would still prefer to set the mark of where we were two years ago as the target of where we should be today. The unpredictability of change can be difficult, and I get it. However, we must, as followers of Christ, understand the fact, that fact, and more importantly, that the complacency that so often replaces change in our lives is the bed of comfort that often puts us to sleep. There were about 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period, so between Malachi and Matthew, it's about 400 years of silence. We don't have any conversation with God. And in the first few chapters of Luke, of course, we hear the proclamation of the Savior's coming, Jesus 
or God talks to, through angels, talks to, an, uh, to angel, talks to Mary and to Joseph, talks to, uh, talks to some of the shepherds even. But then we have, we enter into this morning's text, we shift from this glory and, joy and gladness of these angelic encounters, and we move into this, uh, we replace it with this very public, urgent, prophetic declaration. This is the messenger that the prophet Malachi would say would come. Malachi declared in his book these words of God, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. And so let's join if you would join me in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 2, as we are introduced to the guy named John the Baptizer. During the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall be made level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these very stones to raise up children for Abraham." Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowd asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized by him and said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. I want to look this morning at two primary areas of focus as we consider this text found in Luke. First, John's words bear a high level of urgency, and second... We see that the response of those around him demonstrate a low level of complacency. And again, if you remember Cotter's quote I shared with you earlier, the most significant impediments to meaningful change are low levels of urgency combined with high levels of complacency. If you want to see change in your life and the lives of those around you for the sake of the kingdom, we would do well to take what is here and apply it to our lives today. High levels of urgency and low levels of complacency. John's primary mission was to declare a message of repentance. He was to declare a message of baptism, and it was in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Isaiah points, uh, points out and paints for us a word picture of the preparation that must take place for Christ's coming. He says to prepare the way. 
He says to remove the obstacles, make low the mountains and fill up the valleys, cut the corners, straighten everything, right? The straightest distance or the, uh, the shortest distance from two points is what? A straight line, right? Okay, so straight line, one without any inhibitions getting in the way, and this is John's job to prepare the way for the Lord, to urgently bring attention to the sin that inhibits humanity from being in the presence of a holy God. This is John's job then and today. From, uh, I don't know if any of you live in the valley or travel to the valley at all, but from May 28th to about July 1st, Route 1 in Sear Plantation was shut down, right? After massive rains, uh, the beaver dam gave way and it washed out the road completely. And so for over a month, everybody who was traveling down from the valley to Presque had to go instead through uh, Limestone and Fort Fairfield instead of Caribou, adding a significant detour to the trip. And I, I had been looking at pictures. Uh, they have aerial flyovers, and they, have, you know, they had all kinds of pictures of the progress. And I saw a house just beyond the culvert, just beyond the washout. And I had to imagine the frustration that must have been in their minds when that happened. Now, I did also find out that there was a little road. It was kind of a rough road, and it had lots of curves and windy ways, and it would add probably 15 uh, or so minutes to their trip. But another 100 yards up the road, if that, if that had just washed out up the road a little bit, it would have been easier for them to get to Caribou and to Presque Isle. But instead, for over a month, they had to use this unhappy detour. I remember seeing the outcry online about how long the projections were to fix this road. It was supposed to take about a month. Some people were saying, it should take you about three days. I don't know if you saw the pictures, but it was a big deal, right? It was a big inconvenience for people. And we don't have kings in America, but I have to imagine that if this was the route that the king was going to travel, I highly doubt a month-long timeline would have been appropriate. Like, we would have fixed it, we would have just figured it out, we would have just filled it in and then fixed it later. We would have done something if the king was coming. It wouldn't have been acceptable for the king to have to detour around this or to have to take the long, windy, curvy road to get around it, right? We don't like detours. You can ask my wife about the garage. There's lots of detours in my garage, Rather than just putting everything away, I just don't have time, so I just kind of pile stuff up continually. And I take detours around it. I just kind of carry stuff around, and I get frustrated, and I grumble about it. But I don't ever take the time to fix it. Sometimes the detours in our life we're willing to live with. We're not willing to pay the price or the cost to make them easier, to straighten them and to remove the inhibitions from them. For me, it cost me my time. For others, if there, wasn't a king, uh, if there wasn't a king coming, would we even care to flatten the roads that are in our lives? Or would we deal with the bumps and the curves and the hills and the valleys? The cost to fix Route 1 wasn't cheap either, somewhere around $2 million to fill in that valley so that drivers could avoid the twisty curves of Abelseer Road. And so then whatever is wrong with the road between you and God must be corrected so that His glory might be seen. That is what this scripture says. 
that we must correct the problems in the roads between us and God that His glory might be seen. There's a necessity, there's an urgency in the repentance of John the baptizer. The repentance that He's calling you and me to. Sin must be removed in the presence of holy God. Jesus Himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Attention to and repentance from our sin for our spiritual lives is as important to maintenance and erosion control and paving is for the road systems we use every day. According to Matthew's account of John the baptizer coming, among the people that gathered in the wilderness to hear these words, the words of God through John, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's his reaction to their presence that helped me to see the gravity of his exhortation, the urgency in his words. You might have heard it when, we, when I read it initially. To me, it doesn't come across as a, uh, as a way to convince people to do something you want them to do which is to call them a brood of vipers. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from even these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now even the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He calls them a brood of vipers. He's referring to, uh, not referring to their lineage here, uh, not their Israeli lineage here, but the idea instead that they weren't sons of Abraham. They didn't just have it all together, but instead that we talked about when I covered Luke 2 a few months ago, they were about their father's business. And so as a brood, as offspring, who was their father? Jesus later refers to them even more directly when he calls them sons of the devil. Yet they come to John to hear his word and hear his testimony about baptism and repentance anyway. They're drawn in. They're warned somehow. He says, who warned you? He says. See, snakes flee fire. I was reading an article about sugarcane harvests in Belize. And, uh, and today, even, they still burn the sugarcane fields before they harvest the sugarcane. They want to get rid of all the undergrowth underneath. They want to get rid of the dead stuff so that it makes it easier to cut out the sugarcane. But most importantly, they want to uh, chase the poisonous snakes out of the fields. I, I'm not a huge snake fan. That's one of the reasons I live in northern Maine, right? No poisonous snakes. Thank you. All right. But snakes fleeing from a a fire would have been a commonly understood notion even then. Maybe they didn't have sugar cane there, but they often would burn their fields. And so that would remove the snakes from uh, the field. There's even a story in Acts 28 when Paul was in Malta. He gathered a bundle of sticks. He started a fire, and it says a viper came out because of the heat, and it fastened on his hand. It sucks to be Paul. Don't have time for that story, but again, that's why I live in northern Maine. Very limited snake population. So. But the idea of snakes fleeing 
from fire was understood. And so John and later Jesus' words would have likely called to people's minds, the people around them, the idea of snakes fleeing from fire. But where is it that the heat is coming from? Where is the heat coming from that drew these vipers out? The word of God came to John, it says in Luke 3, 2. This is the same language that's used in the Old Testament for the beginning of a prophet's ministry. The word of God begins to burn inside a man or a woman until it can no longer remain silent. Jeremiah described it this way. He said this, I will not mention him. I I will not speak any more in his name. There is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. It's this burning that was the heat that began to stir up the brood as it should you and I. Are you uncomfortable this morning? I don't have to ask, is it warm in here? Because I know it's warm in here. But is it warm for other reasons? Is the Lord working in your heart? Is it a challenge to be in God's presence because of the truth you know that's within Him? Because even in the church, there's a dulled sense of the necessity and the urgency of repentance. There are likely people here or watching online today that should be fleeing the fire of God's wrath not just into another field, not just into a hole, not just under some rocks, but instead into the gracious mercy of Jesus Christ. Now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are guaranteed, however, His judgment. And we must read His Word and act on it with some measure of urgency. John the baptizer is a little intense. Uh, he's probably looking a little bit sketchy. There's some other, uh, other uh, biblical texts that talk about the fact that he wore camel's hair robes, he ate honey and locusts, and he's running around in the wilderness. Some people thought he was a drunkard. Some people thought he had a demon. I mean, this is who is declaring the goodness of God through repentance. He's he's probably yelling to them. He's probably using a stern voice. He's saying, you brood of vipers, things like this. In Bruner's commentary on Matthew, he points out that Rabinus, an 8th century monk, reminded the ancient church, people speak loudly for three reasons. When others are distant, deaf, or angry, and the human race is all three. We must draw nearer to Christ. We must stop being so distant in our relationship with Him. We must open our ears. We must turn off the noise and the distractions around us. And we have to find joy in our salvation rather than anger in our current circumstance. Don't be fodder for the fire, be urgent in repentance. It's easy today to sit under teaching on a Sunday morning and file it away under helpful stuff for the future. Rather than allowing it to take quick root in your heart, something for tomorrow, something, uh, uh, something I'll do another time because there's still today, I've still got things to do on my schedule, I have plans, 
I might go up to the lake later. I might go out to eat. It's my anniversary. You know, whatever plan it is, right? No offense, honey. My anniversary was Saturday, but I was writing my sermon. You can chastise me later. Remember, though, it's high levels of complacency that have a negative impact on change. There were three groups that were identified in this crowd that were moved to action. They were ready to step out of their routine lives, the things that they were complacent in, that they had been living in, that were having a negative impact on their change. The first group was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which I mentioned already. The second group were the tax collectors, and a third group was a group of soldiers. Three different walks of life received three different sets of instructions. Really quite a collection here of malcontents. John doesn't seem to, uh, to get any target, good, easy targets here, no low-hanging fruit. But instead, he gets the self-assured. He gets the traitors, and he gets the brutal. To the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one of the interesting things I find here is that John doesn't dismiss them. He calls them a brood of vipers, but I don't believe it was to reject them. I think it was to make them aware of their own wickedness, to call them specifically to the repentance that was needed for them or to be consumed. So when they ask the question, what shall we do? He tells them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Self-assured, self prepared, self-righteous, self-seeking. Do you see a trend here? These are the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the time. And John asked them to have an other-centered focus in the midst of their everyday self-centeredness. It was a costly fruit of repentance. He was asking them to do something that would cost them something. To the tax collectors, ironically, John doesn't tell them to quit being tax collectors. I mean, that would seem to make sense, right? Stop being a tax collector. It's a stupid thing. Nobody likes tax collectors. But instead, when they ask him, what shall we do? He says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. His words were a radical shift from the normal operations of such an unjust profession, right? This profession was marked by greed. It was marked by injustice. And the ease of self-enrichment was always a temptation. It was always something that they gave into as tax collectors. And so collect no more than you were authorized to do was a radical shift. He was calling them to something that would cost them something. It was a costly fruit of repentance. To the soldiers, similar to the tax collector, he doesn't demand that they go work an honest job instead. He doesn't say stop being a soldier. He says instead, be honest at your job. So when they ask, what shall we do? He says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. These soldiers could easily and likely often use their status to manipulate people into giving them money or to do things that they wanted them to do. Yet John calls them to bring justice into the unjust system that they were at work within. 
And I can't imagine the weight of such a task, right? I don't know if you guys have watched very many crime TV shows. I like crime TV shows. But what happens to a dirty cop when he wants to go back, when he wants to be good? Right? He becomes the next target. A dirty cop who wants to roll on everybody else, he becomes a target. And so I can imagine that these soldiers who are so used to acting in a certain way, manipulating people, falsely accusing people, and he says, I don't to ask a soldier to say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. That's a big thing. It's a, fro- it's a costly fruit of repentance. Each of these groups could have heard John's words, and they could have followed them for later. Yet they kept on asking this question, what should we do? And, and he gave each of them a word that called them out specifically. It called out their specific complacency in their life. This isn't just a general call to religious piety. It's not just a pursuit of knowledge by coming here on Sunday morning or opening your Bible occasionally. But this is specific fruit for their life in that day. And actions as well that were more than showing up to hear what John had to say the next time he came around because it was interesting. See, what we do on Sunday morning, the time that we spend in God's Word, isn't just entertainment. It's for the sake of transformation. And if you need to understand where you're at in this, John presents us with a litmus test for where our trust is set. He says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He does not encourage them to resist, uh, sorry, to rest in the faithfulness of those who have gone before them. He doesn't say, just stick to the status quo and don't upset the apple cart. Jesus' submission to his earthly parents was a thing, right? But ultimately, what did he do? I shared with you uh, about a month ago. He ultimately identified himself with his heavenly Father's business. Do not say that we have Abraham as our father. God will raise up stones that will be more faithful. As followers of Christ, we cannot be okay with high levels of complacency in our lives and in the lives that we have built for ourselves. And we must ask the question, what shall I do? What shall I do? If your conversion is real... If your faith is genuine, then you can't help but be fruitful. It isn't that the fruit of repentance earns right standing. We don't earn our way to God, but it's that your desire not to sin is for some other reason other than the love of God. If it's that, instead of true repentance, which is sorrow for your sin based on a selfless motive of love for God and a sorrow that we've offended Him, What is our motivation for what we do? What is the motivation for coming to church on Sunday? What is the motivation for being a part of the community of faith? R.C. Sproul said it this way, The fruit of conversion is a heart that loves people, our neighbor, whether they are believers or unbelievers, whatever they are. If they are in the gutter, we don't ask them how they fell there. we got to get them out. That's what converted people do. They show compassion. This is the way that change comes about, understanding urgency and understanding action. We cannot and we must not rely on where we have been 
or those who have come before us to be the change that is needed in our hearts. If you want the freedom that Christ offers, we must be willing to accept the unpredictable nature of His kingdom. That's what He calls us to. He doesn't call us to comfortable complacency, but He calls us to unpredictable freedom. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. It's, they love that. They love saying that. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin is a slave. The slave does not remain in the house forever, and the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He goes on to tell them that they would be the ones who would hate Him and would ultimately send Him to a cross. They have the opportunity to be free. They have the opportunity to be sons of God. And I hope those words bear so much weight in your life. We have to rest in them. We have to rest in the promise that God has given us. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. Church, you are invited to be sons and daughters of the king. This is the promise we have in Scripture. And he asks us to respond in repentance and faith and love and compassion for those around us. I was listening to a sermon by a pastor by the name of Chris Ritter, and he said uh, this, and I don't think I can say it any better, new beginnings start with self-awareness, not self-esteem. Pride is not the doorway to good beginnings, humility is. John the baptizer, his directive is for us to set aside the pride of who we are and what we've done, instead become aware of who we were and who we are no longer, so that we might become who God has prepared us to be. But first, we have to wake up from the sleep that the bed of comfort and complacency has lulled us with. The promise of tomorrow, the promise of more time, the promise of another chance. In the book of Revelation, God reveals through the other John these words for the church of Sardis, and I want them to stand as a warning to you if your motivation is anything besides your love of God. Jesus revealed this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember them, what you have received and what you have heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour at what hour that I come against you. Wake up. Repent. We can't merely look awake. We can't put on those glasses that have the eyes drawn on them and then fall asleep and hope that our teacher isn't going to notice that we're actually asleep, right? Those trick, we can't trick God. 
And to be honest with you, I don't even think we can any longer trick the world around us either. Recently, a friend from college that isn't a Christian, he's a guy that I've lost some touch with, he reposted a message on Facebook about Matthew 25. The original post said, Jesus describes true converts as being marked by a peculiar empathy towards the poor, the marginalized, and the incarcerated. It then says, but he describes false converts as being outwardly religious and marked by a peculiar callousness towards the poor, marginalized, and the incarcerated. And his comment was this, huh, that can't be right, can it? This is what an unbelieving world sees in the lives of Christians today. A Matthew 25 warning for those who haven't heeded the Luke 3 call to change here, and they see it, the world sees it as proof of our hypocrisy. This is absolutely right, I told him. You and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but please understand that what you see from some religious folks is not what is prescribed in Scripture. Also know, however, that it's our sin that separates us. All of us from God. It's why we need His grace and His mercy. See, this man needs Jesus just like I do, just like you do, we all do. And John said to fix the road so that they will see the salvation of God rather than the hypocrisy of some, I'll do it tomorrow, would-be Christians. Fix the roads. John warned those who gathered that God can make children out of the stones. And at first, this can feel like John is passing over the Pharisees, and maybe he even feels like he's passed over you. But I'm more confident in my God than that. I believe that He can make children from the hard-hearted stones of those who fear wrath yet love this life so much. Those that appear alive but are actually dead. He's not done with you yet. And so what today, what small step of obedience in the right direction can you take? Repent, turn, and step towards Christ. And we have to be asking this question, what shall I do? What shall I do? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that it rings true in the hearts of each one who's gathered here today and any of those who would hear it. Lord, your word is truth. Sometimes it's hard truth, but it is truth. And so I pray, Lord, that the words of John the Baptist would not be excluded from our lives today as a historical work for somebody else, but instead would take root in the hearts of all who have heard it. Lord, let us see and understand your goodness and your mercy. But let us also see, Lord, a call to repentance that results 
in a love for our neighbors, for those who are struggling, for those who are in prison, for those who need your love. And Lord, let us not set aside anyone as John did not, judging them before the time has come for Jesus to judge, that they would not be able to accept your word or your truth, and instead, Lord, help us to proclaim it. Help us to be faithful in that work that we would know who you are, that we would make straight the roads ahead, that we would make low the mountains and we would raise up the valleys and we would eliminate the curves and the turns so that people would see your glory. Lord, you've called us to be people of truth. Your word is truth. And so, Lord, help us to demonstrate that in our lives in repentance and action. Help us, Lord, to see the need for urgency, to remove complacency, that you might be glorified today. We pray this in your name. Amen.